You're listening to Cybersecurity Inside, a podcast focused on getting you up to speed on issues in cybersecurity with engaging experts and stimulating conversations. To learn more, visit us at intel.com slash cybersecurity inside. Most organizations don't attack the tax for two to three years. Why on earth is a subject like this is so important not matter to me? There are multiple layers of security that you need in an organization, and sadly, there's no one-size-fits-all. Hi, and welcome to the Cybersecurity Inside Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Garrison, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Camille Moorhart. Hi, Camille. Hi, Tom. I think I may be doing a little bit better than you are at the moment. You usually ask me how I am, but I see that your on-screen name is Covey. Yes, I am one of those dreaded breakthrough COVID cases. I was fully vaccinated, and yet somehow I ended up coming down with it. Well, you, you've got a respectable nasal touch to yeah. your tone right now. but. <laughs> This is now day six for me, I think, and I'm now starting to come out of it. It It's definitely one of the more sicker periods of my life that I've been, and I didn't feel very great. So anyway, get that vaccine if you haven't gotten it. And if you have got it, still wear your mask because you could be like me. And I was wearing my mask and everything else, but I still ended up with it. So, but I'm, I'm here, I'm relatively healthy. So that's, that's all good news. I'm, I'm grateful that the vaccine kept me out of the hospital. Could you still understand me? I've just put a mask on for this. <laughs> I am I am broadcasting from the safety of my pseudo-quarantined uh, studio here. So maybe we should start with a, um, a mooliism. First of all, is legal or HR in the room? Uh, if they are, we cannot have any mooly stories. That's right. We, we okay. No, no legal or HR. So let's get started. I remember he would say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, you know, for all the people that don't know Mooley, he is quite a character. First of all, the guy is super, super smart, and that's why we wanted to have him on as a podcast because he's he's just such a genuinely good human being. But he tells some very colorful, very. Uh, um, vivacious stories. Let's just put it that way. Usually all with a great uh, lesson at the end that you can learn from. But uh, boy, the journey to get there is interesting to say the least. My first in-person interaction with Mooley, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and get him in trouble here, I guess, is I was an intern. I was in graduate school. It was an MBA. But I looked young then as I do now, but even more so because it was 20 years ago or whatever. And there was another intern also, this was in, we were in R&B, the main headquarters at Intel in California, in Silicon Valley. And the other intern happened to also look younger than his age. So both of us, we were going to lunch together. We got in the elevator and the doors open and Mooley walked in. And of course we knew who he was because he ran the division. You know, he was very high up. Mm -hmm. He stepped in the elevator and he said, since when did we start hiring teenagers? And then he just grinned hugely. And, you know, it was just like this moment of, oh, my God. But then he said, hey, you guys are the new MBA interns. He actually knew exactly what we were doing and what we were working on. And that was really the impressive part. Yeah. We, we sort of jumped right into telling, talking about Mooley. I think for our listeners, it's probably pretty obvious that our guest 
on the podcast this week is Muli Eden, who spent his career at Intel and has since gone on to do uh, philanthropic work. He does some teaching as well, which we talk about in the podcast. Uh, I don't think it would be much of an exaggeration, if any at all, to say that he is one of the few people in the world probably responsible for all of us having wireless and mobile communications now. It goes without saying, obviously, there was many, many people involved. But Muli was one of those key individuals that played an outsized role in getting wireless built into the laptop and connectivity, pervasive connectivity. You could go to an airport now and just get connected. I, you know, A lot of people probably listening to the podcast don't remember. It wasn't that long ago that um yeah our our laptops ha- you know had had this new thing called wireless networking but nobody trusted it nobody would go to on a business trip and not bring along an ethernet cable right and and never not only that but there once it first started you had a card yeah. you had to go buy to insert yeah. into your computer and you had to make a decision what kind of card and then you know get the computer with a slot in it as opposed to now which was really his vision is what we do now. So we have a very fruitful conversation, wide ranging topics with Muli. And I think it'd be great if we just jump right into it. What do you think, Camille? I, I do. I'm just going to say for those people who are listening on audio, it may be worth a quick trip over to the video just to see my amazing hat replication. Um, Muli's famous for wearing a certain kind of a hat in a certain kind of a way, which of course he showed up with in the video. But what he didn't know is that I had prepared with my own version of his hat for the video. So that's right. That was very entertaining. And, and for, <laughs> for those of you who haven't seen it, just think of a beret, a black, it's a black beret, um, that Muli, anytime he speaks publicly, he's always wearing this kind of a hat. All right, so let's jump right into the podcast. Our guest today is Muli Eden. Muli is currently a consultant in high tech, delivering virtual keynotes during the COVID pandemic after over 30 years at Intel. In his last position at Intel, he was senior vice president and general manager for the Perceptual Computing Group and president of Intel Israel. He was instrumental in the Wi-Fi transformation. In 2012, Muli was voted Forbes' top 10 most brilliant technological minds in the world. And in 2010, he was number 26 on Fast Company's list of most creative people. I've worked with Muli for many years at Intel, and I can tell you he is a straight shooter. He says it like it is, and he's an extremely intelligent and entertaining guy. So it is great to have you on the on the podcast, Muli. Thanks. It's great to be here. I mentioned you were number 26 on Forbes' top list of brilliant minds. Like, How do you top that? First of all, I don't have a clue how they did it. But the one thing I do know is the first running up, the top, number one, was Lady Gaga. And when this was published, everybody in Intel was laughing at me, but I didn't care because at home, finally, I got some respect for my kids that I appear on a decent list. So I just keep the title and go on with this. I don't have a clue how they measure it. That's fine. Uh, well, I tell you, if I was on either of those lists, my head would be so big I wouldn't be able to fit in the room, but... 
anyway, it's great yeah. to have you here. Thanks. We've had guests all over the industry in different facets talking about various forms of security. I just wonder from your perspective, you've been out of Intel now for a while, you're talking to these other groups, you're consulting, you're speaking. What do you see as on top of people's minds or what are they talking about when they think about security? I would divide it into two categories. The, the category of people that understand what is the security and what is the risk of security. And these are the people that do not sleep at night. They understand that we are very vulnerable. They understand that if it's software, it's penetrable. You try to put yourself totally offline and still there's a risk. And I believe these people know that once somebody is inside ransomware or any other way that it jeopardizes your information, it can destroy the company. The other people, which are the complacent people, say, yes, it's interesting. It's not going to happen to me. And they do not put the right priority, but definitely the issue of security, cybersecurity, all the things, probably one of the most important things today. Many of the systems which are designed today are designed with the security in mind from the first stage in order to ensure that the information or the development or whatever they're trying to keep will not be jeopardized. We've talked for some time, Camille and I, with various guests, the challenge with the mindset of, well, it won't happen to me. We're trying to dispel that with people that it will happen to you and it's preventable. Have you seen any either arguments or whatnot within your consulting practice that have been more impactful to get people to actually take notice and start making actual changes? I believe that people that do not take action to improve their security, probably it's because they're ignorant, not they're bad people or bad judgment. They do not understand the risk. Now, I had a lot of people when I was working in Intel around that, that complain about this stupid CEO that does not get it. The stupid CIO that is, or IT manager, he's not willing to spend money on security. Always blaming the high, the executive, the high-level management, which, by the way, makes sense because, you know, the higher you are, the oxygen concentration is lower. So blaming high-level management for not being the brilliant guy, it's okay. But guys, I used to tell my guys, and I used to tell today company I'm working with, there are three things in life that you do not choose and you need to live with. It's your kids, it's your boss, and it's your customer. You get it. You need to live with it. Now, if you cannot persuade your boss, and I used to say it also in Intel, you cannot say the boss is stupid or he do not understand. You failed to persuade him. So it's your problem. So guys, if you go and speak with somebody who does not internalize it, use some other tool. Use FAD. I believe you call it in the in English FAD. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Let me tell you what could happen. Change your tactic. Use Do something. But you cannot blame him. Blame yourself. And you're not successful. Go resign and let somebody who is better than you do it. These are the people you need to persuade. That's your job. And just to give you an example, some of the innovation that we used to have in Intel, I will not call names because everybody knows some of the people I used to work with, some of my managers, been brilliant people, but their imagination was not great. This was not their forte. And you know, I was trying to say, hey, you know, this is going to be so great and so beautiful and everything, and I didn't get it. And I was blaming them until I realized one day that I need to blame myself. So you know what? I spent $50,000 on videos, and whenever I need an idea, I tried to demonstrate it, user a video or something else, in order to make sure that it's much more palpable for them to understand the thing. So I believe security is a huge issue. It's the 
engineer, it's a salesperson, it's the marketing people. It's their job to explain the information in such a way that people will understand this is this that jeopardizes their company, and you read about it every day in the press. See what's happening. I want to ask a little bit along those lines. It's a bit parallel to security, but you've been at the forefront of a couple of different major technological transformations in the world that really change so much how we interact with technology that it can't even be put into a technology category anymore. So, for example, mobile compute. When you place your bet or decide to make a call to go with something like mobile compute or wireless in the compute space, is it an intuitive decision for you or is that an analytical decision? When you speak about mega project like the wireless, like Centrino, like intercoltic technology, the first Yona processor, I had the privilege to lead an army of people, 200 brilliant people, 250 people. And you say, Muni, yes, I was the captain of the ship, but there have been many brilliant officers that without them, nothing would have happened. So, you know, you interview me, but definitely, you know, I'm a representing group. It's not a one-man show, and definitely I cannot take the credit. But every innovation, real innovation, is coming and is challenging the status quo. What is innovation? You know, I can do something nobody has done before. Whatever you did so far, I can do it faster, better, and cheaper. But I'm trying to take people out of the comfort zone. You take risks. You go to unknown charter. So everything which is innovative includes risk. Now the question is how you balance it. So I believe, and I used to tell it to my people in CCG, you know, I used to say, go be trust, from the rest I want data. So when, first of all, I want to have all available data before I make the decision. But one thing I learned from my boss in Israel, he told me, is the minute you go up and up in the management rank, you'll have the, the, to make the decision with, with less people, less money, less time, which means the unknown factor is going to be bigger. So, so first of all, let's capitalize and let's have all the data which is available, open parentheses, Make sure you don't go into analysis paralysis, close. At some point in time, probably you got 80, 85% of the data. You'll never have 100% because it's risk. The rest is using, I believe you use the word guts, experience, intuition, whatever you call it, but you use another thing. And this is the part of the risk. And definitely there's intuition involved and you feel it in your stomach if you make a big decision. You mentioned about Centrino, and I'm just intrigued with it because I lived through it, although I was on a different part of Intel when you were working through Centrino. Centrino, for people that aren't Intel historians, was the time when Intel expanded what the brand really meant for the product to include Wi-Fi into the product, into a notebook. And so we not only had Wi-Fi as a capability, but we tested it to make sure that it was a good high quality experience so you could connect if you went to the airport, for example. So that's the history. But Muli, back to you, as somebody who was part of that transition to see where we are today, could you even imagine how that would impact people's lives, number one? And number two, trying to bring it back to security, how that changes the whole sort of risk profile or risk management for people that now they can connect anywhere and other people might be able to connect to them whether they know it or not. But I just wonder what's your perspective as somebody who really was on the forefront early on in that transition? 
when people ask me, how did you know that people would like to have Wi-Fi, etc.? I asked Alan Kay from Xerox Park. He's the guy that was involved in inventing the mouse and the icons and stuff like this. And I, how did you know that people would like to use it? And he gave me a sentence that I always use as my last point in my presentation. He's saying, in our current exponential world, it's very difficult to predict the future. You know, Tom, when we've been 30 years ago, 25 years ago in Intel, life was a ball. You know, I need to do a microprocessor. I could do linear extrapolation. I knew what I'll need three years from now, six years from now. It was easy. The guys from today, you come and tell me what's going to be five years from now. It's exponential. It's crazy. How do you do prediction? And maybe we'll speak about risk-taking later on, etc., etc. But definitely you need to make a huge amount of risk and you need to try to know where to shoot. And what he told me is a great sense. He said, there's only one way to predict the future. Invent it. Meaning, he, said, he didn't know that people would like to play with mouth. He didn't know that people like... He invented it and people used it. I believe the same thing happened to us because if I try to spell some of the stories about Centrino away because the story that you call to read on the test case of the university has nothing to do with reality with like most of the test cases. First of all, the microprocessor that they designed, the Banyas, it had slow form factor, very low power, etc. There was only one small problem. Banyas frequency where we introduced Centrino was lower than Pentium. And management told us that we are crazy, we are freaks. They said, you are idiots. How are we going to sell a microprocessor, a new microprocessor, which has got less frequency after we educated the market that frequency is what matters, this is what sells. And we explained to them, guys, it's like a car. You don't care about the speed of the engine, the frequency. You care about how fast the car is going and the performance of Banyan was great and everybody was laughing at us. You know, for Israeli, we laugh at you, you are sure that he's wrong. You throw you through the window, you come from the door, you throw you from the door, you come back through the other window. But it was definitely not easy. People didn't like it. was not easy way to sell it. And I remember 2003 when we introduced Centrino, we said, you know, you're going to have Wi-Fi in each house. You're going to have Wi-Fi in hotels. You're going to have Wi-Fi in airplanes. People laughed at us, literally. They laughed at us. And by the way, Four years later, the attach rate of Wi-Fi to notebooks was 96%. It's unbelievable. The key takeaway, every great innovative idea is going through three stages. First of all, you are ridiculed. It doesn't mean that you are wrong. Secondly, you are strongly opposed. Don't be discouraged. You take them out of the comfort zone. Probably you will behave similarly. And third... It's accepted as a fact of life, or they both think it was his idea to start with. Which is, again, okay. Because he believes in it, and it's fine. But I say, if there's a few key takeaways that I can take from the whole project of Centrino, is first, is the idea that you are coming with innovative idea, nobody will come and tell you, hey, you are so brilliant, you are great, because you take them out of the comfort zone. Guys, we need to prove ourselves. We are going to prove to the world, and if you know how to take the team, and how to corral them, and Actually, it was almost a personal ego issue. You can take a crisis and make something wonderful out of it. And from leadership point of view, this was one of my biggest lessons in my life and in Inter. You mentioned a couple of things about how you lead and things that you've learned. I'm wondering how many of these things come naturally and how much of it you push yourself. Because I worked, I'll say, in your division, way, way down, very junior, many years ago. I saw you do a couple of different things. You know, one was 
with senior people within your organization, you did not put up with poor analysis. That was unacceptable. And the meeting would just end and they would have to come back <laughs> with a proper analysis. Whereas with junior people, including myself, you listened very carefully, kindly, you were considerate, you were very nice about it when things maybe weren't perfect, very encouraging. And you actually gave quite a bit of support and opportunities for some of the more junior people who are coming up. And then I also witnessed myself that you are very transparent and direct, as Tom said, straight shooter with, I would say, both customers and the press. And I think both loved you. So I'm wondering, were these sort of hard won or hard earned ways of being, or did you just kind of walk into the world and you're like this and, and it just happened to work out? I don't know. Divided to two things that I believe I, 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 I spoke about it many times. There's management and there's leadership. Management, I can train everybody to be a manager because you know how to plan, how to track, how to speak with people, how to promote people. It's one thing. Leadership is much more complicated. People fail to recognize it. The manager is a manager because I nominated him to be a manager. A leader is a leader because people choose to follow him. He's a role model. They want to be like him when they'll grow up. They like to work with him, etc. And you cannot nominate a leader. So I believe there's two things. First of all, I believe that you can improve leadership of every person for where he is today. Is he going to be a great leader? I don't know. It depends. There are some people that will never be great leaders. Some people will be. But the other thing, which is very important to understand if you are trying to be a leader in an organization is, what is a leader? Because when I ask people, give me names of leaders. So some people start with Winston Churchill and George Washington, and they go to Marie Curie, and, and some people go to Moses, and some people go to Jesus. And after we connect collect 20 people, which are totally different, Sister Teresa, etc., then we come and ask, what is common to all these people? And it's very difficult to find. It is no one source of leadership. Each one of us has its own strength, its own, own forte. One person is brilliant, so people will follow him because he's brilliant. The other person is a people person. He cares about people. They want to promote and listen to them. People go after him because of that. The third one is did three successful startups, so people want to join him. The point which is important to every leader to understand is, first of all, try to understand what's your own leadership and then capitalize on it. The tragedy is when you look at somebody else that you say, hey, he's a nice role model, and you're trying to imitate his leadership. And I remember it happened to me. I was coaching somebody who was a brilliant architect, and he was giving a speech after me. And, you know, I'm using a lot of sense of humor and stuff, and he tried to be funny. And it was a disaster. People almost start crying. And I went to them, listen, the next time you tell a joke, I'll start doing architecture of microprocessors. Intel will not go very far with it. So try to understand what's your strength. Don't try to be funny. You are not funny. But you're brilliant. Capitalize on your own strength. And I believe with the right coaching, people can understand what's their strengths and try to capitalize and get to better. And you know, the rest is who you are, what is the environment, some luck. Everything is in this stew. I think you're basically telling me I should not have worn the beret today. This was... 
This was no, imitation. <laughs> no, as long as it's not Kangol and you're not infringing my, my IP, it's okay. <laughs> One thing I remember you, you saying, you used to say, stop it, stop it. It's not a challenge. It's a problem. Quit calling it an issue yeah. or a challenge. It's a problem. <laughs> I want people to admit that they have a problem. And I told everybody, guys, I don't have a problem with bad news. If we are doing innovative things, we'll have been, I have problems with surprises. If somebody tells me something and after a quarter he tells me they've got three months delays, it's when he doesn't have a clue what he's doing. If he's coming say, Muli, I've got problem ABC, I need assistant ABC, we need to do it, or we need to, that's fine. But I will say, though, that the language piece that you mentioned is super important. And it is something in my 27 years at the company, and seeing individuals like you, Muli, who just, you know, cut right through it, it mattered. My role model for this was Andy Groff. He was not trying to offend. He was trying to have a culture and say, guys, don't bullshit each other. Say as it is. If you don't have anything to say, say I don't have anything to say. We need to be honest. And I believe he coined the word intellectually honest. And I follow it. I was listening to a YouTube where you were giving a presentation about one of the biggest, well, I'll say problems that we have <laughs> as a world right now, because how do we teach our children and how do we set up a curriculum and classes when we don't know what the future is? Like you say, the, if we want our kids to be the biggest innovators, they're going to have to make the future. We don't have problems defined yet. We don't know what technology they're going to have at their disposal. I know that you're working with a major university in Israel now. Do you think that the definition of relevant education is changing? It's not changing. It's been changed totally. A lot of what we are doing now is totally non-relevant. People haven't internalized it yet. And the reason is as following. First of all, the combination of CPU compute power, the cloud, AI and robotics is going to put millions of people out of job. By the way, starting with the lower socioeconomical level, because jobs that are simple, repeating themselves, dangerous, etc., etc. Whenever you look at the things that we are so proud, all these automatic warehouses, all the things, many people are going to be non-relevant. Now, if we're in exponential world, as we said before, it's very difficult to predict the, the future. We need to train our people, our kids, to jobs that don't exist yet. No one of us can predict what's going to happen 20 years from now. To solve problems that haven't happened by using technology that hasn't been invented. That's what you need to teach the kids. And somebody told me, you didn't say anything. And I said, no, I said everything. Because the only way to teach people to do it is to teach them to learn. If there's no way that I can tell them what's going to happen 20 years from now, if I give them the toolkit to learn, then when they'll go and face new problems, they'll be able to do it. Going to another direction, do a rewind. Albert Einstein said what? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing again and again, expecting different results. Which means you do the same, you'll get the same. Guys, if you go to school, you'll see that a lot of the curriculum, the way they teach the kids is the same way that they did it to you. So in 40, 50 years, the world has changed dramatically. It's starting by internalizing that what you used 15 years ago is not relevant anymore. But I believe if the system will recognize it, it will be important. If people will not recognize it in 50 years, 
will find that they grew up generations that are not competitive. And when I speak about the exponential world, there's only one thing which is stays, it's not exponential, it stays linear. And it's time to bring a kid from the age of six to the age of 18. It's 12 years. And if you screwed it, it will take you another 12 years to fix it. It's linear. You cannot accelerate time. So yes, I believe the education system has got huge challenge all over the world. What we used to learn is totally different today. Well, we have covered a lot. We've, we've talked about security. We talked about communication and leadership and now education. But we have one more important segment, Muli, and that is our fun fact. And so what kind of interesting fun fact do you have that you would want to share with our listeners? I'll speak about something that happened to me in Intel. And I'll challenge you, Tom, in a moment. I was engaged in many strategic meetings. I was sitting in the CEO staff. And whenever we wanted to do something for three, four, five years ahead, we used to swag it, S-W-A-G. We used to swag things. And for 10 years, I was swagging at the beginning as director of market, the end of CCG. And I came back to Israel and I said, I'm going to continue to do it. And then I went around the internet and asked them if they know what is swag because I guess it's an acronym that I'm not familiar with. And when I go back to teach the people, they're going to ask me, Moody, what is swagging in the strategic... Tom, do you know what well, swagging is? Well, I know what it means, but I don't, I don't know if it stands for something. But What it means? If you take a swag at something, it's not a guess, but it's like an educated, informed guess, I guess, if you think about it that way. You've been very close, and I went to everybody, and nobody could tell me. They told, go to Andy Grove. Andy will tell you because he coined this word. So I went to Andy, and I said, Andy, what is swag? So he started laughing and asked me, why do you ask for it? I said, because everybody's using it, and I'm using it. So he told me, it's scientific, wild, ass huh. guess. <laughs> so now I know what swagging is. I used it for 10 years, and Tom Garrison, until one minute ago, didn't know what's the minute of yeah. swag. <laughs> So it's scientific, well, as guests, you can call it intuitive or whatever, but definitely we use it. And for me, this is one of the funny things that I found on it 10 years after I've been in Inter. That's great. That's a good one. That's a good one. All right, Camille, what fun fact do you have for us? Well, I have to say, I learned something else about cephalopods. I guess it's Latin. I think it's Latin. I don't know. Is uh, basically head and foot together. So these are things like octopuses and nautiluses. Because until a minute ago, it sounds to me like a bit virus. But <laughs> Right. I had no idea that octopuses have actually three hearts. And I was looking more about this three heart thing in an octopus because my son told me. I was like, wow, really? I'm going to have to fact check that one before I use it as a fun fact. And one of their hearts is a system heart, which kind of pumps blood around the system. But then the two other hearts pump the blood through the gills. But then I discovered that octopuses have nine brains. And that just kind of blew me away. They have a brain between their eyes. And then they have a brain for each one of their eight arms. They also have a brain. So I want to tell you, I'm so happy that Israelis are not octopuses. Because if in Israel he would have got nine brain, he would argue with himself to death. <laughs> Three hearts and nine brains, you know, that's going to be an interesting creature. That is really, really cool. I knew octopuses were cool, but uh, I didn't realize that. Those, those were good ones. So I'm going into the world of food. 
And I stumbled on this article. It, it actually turns out that McDonald's, the company McDonald's, they once made bubblegum flavored broccoli in the hopes that kids would want to eat the broccoli. And it shouldn't be necessarily a surprise that the kids did not like it. They were confused by the taste. That was a bad gut decision by somebody high up. Muli, this was a really, really interesting conversation. So thanks for the time and we will talk soon. See you guys. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.